Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 11th of November. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, debate started this week on the Virgin Media Tonight programme when Sinn Féin spokesperson on housing, Owen O'Brien, and the Minister for Housing discussed the government's Housing for All plan. During that debate, Darrell O'Brien claimed that the housing crisis is not an emergency. That was latched onto by Sinn Féin and raised during leaders' questions this week on both Thursday and on Friday. This is a housing emergency, is it not? Like Dara O'Brien, the Taoiseach Michal Martin wouldn't be drawn into saying housing is an emergency. Deputy, I'm not going to play your populist game. I mean, look, Sinn Féin essentially is populist in its approach to issues. Uh, I've stated my position on housing. I use my definitions. Uh, and I said it's the greatest and most important urgent social problem facing this country. I said that repeatedly. You're not going to put words in my mouth. But what and I would say to you is this. We do not heads. understate through the chair. We okay. do not understate the seriousness for many people out there. Michal Martin on Wednesday. Sinn Féin returned to the same question on Thursday. Honisha, do you accept that there's a housing emergency? Piers Doherty. Leo Bradker was more inclined to agree with Sinn Féin's use of the word emergency than Michal Martin was when he responded to the Sinn Féin president. I agree that there is a housing emergency. Um, and I've said so in the past. Uh, and I agree that there is a housing crisis. And I've used that terminology in the past. Uh, but competing with each other to find new and more dramatic words to describe the housing challenge doesn't build any houses, doesn't solve any problems for any of the people uh, who you mentioned in your contribution. But the Tanisha said more was needed to solve the problem than Sinn Féin talking about the problem. What we require is housing action, and that's exactly what we're doing, uh, led by Minister O'Brien implementing housing for all, which is a good strategy and a strategy which I believe is working. Earlier in the week, Michal Martin said that Sinn Féin had little in the way of solutions. But I've listened to the deputy to the chair for the last four minutes plus 
one single solution came from the deputy. Not one single proposal came from the deputy in respect of this. And Leo Bradker claimed that when Sinn Féin has power, it's not effective. But there's no party in this house that's been in office on this island more than yours. You're 20 years in office on and off in Northern Ireland with a Sinn Féin finance minister, a Sinn Féin housing minister, a Sinn Féin joint head of government, to use your own terms. And what's happening in Northern Ireland? House prices are going up, rents are going up. To use your own figures, 20,000 people are homeless. So if we failed, surely you failed worse and for longer. What are your criteria for failure? Do you apply one standard for us and another standard to yourselves? To add to all of this government defence, the Taoiseach Michal Martin claimed that Sinn Féin is actually a part of the problem. You're a serial, the, the, the party opposite is a serial opposer to housing all the time. Conliffe Road being one of them, you know. That's uh, the Taoiseach. On Wednesday, let's speak now to Ono Brin, who is Sinn Féin's uh, spokesperson on housing. A lot of criticism of government uh, performance uh, thus far in terms of uh, delivering housing for all. Uh, but the government was giving as good as it got, did it not? Well, I think the government is simply trying to deflect from their own failures. Um, I, I'm more than happy, as you know, to come on any radio show and list the very lengthy uh, alternative policies and alter- alternative budgetary proposals Sinn Féin has to tackle the housing crisis. But the, the, the central problem here is that the reason why it's important for government to accept we're in an emergency is because when you have accepted that, then you start using emergency powers. Then you start doing things that you wouldn't ordinarily do in the ordinary course of events to try and tackle the crisis. And House prices are higher than they have ever been. They're higher than the Celtic Tiger Peak, and they are continuing to rise. Same is uh, the case with rent. The government are missing their social and affordable housing targets, which aren't uh, high enough in the first place. Uh, And we have the highest level of homelessness uh, ever recorded. And that's two and a half years into this government. That's six years into Mm. the partnership between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Uh, And that's in the context of a government that is claiming, uh, falsely in my view, but claiming to have the most comprehensive housing policy in the history of the state uh, and to be spending again. It's mm. a false claim, but they make it repeatedly, but spending €4 billion Euros annually. Uh, so uh, unless something radical changes, uh, unless we have some acceptance of government of their failures and shift in policy, this housing crisis is going to get worse. And that's why I'm absolutely of the belief that we need a general election and a change of government, a change of housing minister and crucially a change of policy, because at this stage, that's the only thing that's going to deliver the volume of good quality affordable homes uh, that people out there desperately need. Do you think the government is well intended? Uh, and the reason I ask you that is uh, because you told the Taoiseach that he was a disgrace. Shame on you. You said you're a disgrace. Yeah, and, and the, the specific reason I said that was uh, uh, during leaders' questions, Mary read out a series of real case studies. Um, we heard every one of them on the programme during the week. Exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really important that... We don't just talk about facts and figures. Mm. We don't just uh, talk about politicians. That we listen to those voices. So the reason why Sinn Féin put out the appeal for people to come forward and give us their stories mm. is so we could put that on the record. The Taoiseach dismissed that. Mm. Um, uh, and I thought to dismiss the real uh, life experience of people who are suffering in housing need because of his failures, mm. I thought that was an absolute disgrace. Okay, but uh, that personalisation of a... a, a, a shame at those stories not dismiss them in the way he did. But that personal uh, attack uh, wouldn't seem uh, parliamentary language uh, to deal with, uh, the, the, the appropriate type of parliamentary language to deal with s- such a, a serious issue, w- an issue that is uh, the most important challenge in the country, as everybody agrees. So the 
people coming into my constituency clinic every single day uh, who are homeless, who are at risk of homelessness, uh, who are struggling to afford sky-high rents or mortgages, uh, they don't care about parliamentary language, quite frankly. They care uh, about their children. They mm. care about themselves. Uh, and they are under the most extreme pressure. I mean, when I was on the debate with Dara O'Brien, I referenced one family and they had rung me a couple of hours before the show. Mm. Uh, two adults, four children, working people, uh, not only homeless, but not able to get into emergency accommodation. About 20 local authorities on any given night mm. uh, don't have any emergency accommodation when people present because they're full. So quite frankly, um, if, if my language uh, uh, was unparliamentary, mm. I think that's just a reflection of how okay, frustrated... I, it, doesn't re- it, does, it doesn't really matter to me, or, or I'm sure most of the people listening to us, uh, but uh, I think there is uh, that question, uh, if your proposals are going to be taken seriously, uh, if uh, the way you go about presenting them is through mudslingings, shouting at the Taoiseach, shame on you and you're a, a disgrace. Uh, the Taunister told Piers Doherty yesterday that the government will deliver 20 thousand new homes this year. Uh, h- how many more could be built? Well, first of all, the government won't deliver 28,000 homes this year. Uh, they'll only actually probably deliver a thousand of those. The rest will be delivered by the private sector. Uh, uh, independent um, experts have estimated that we need between forty and 50,000 new homes a year. Um, so that's not my figure. That's folks from Trinity College and, and Technical uh, University Dublin uh, and elsewhere. Mm. And in fact, the, the government's own target is based on a report by the ESRI, which looked at future housing needs, but didn't look at current pent-up demand, particularly mm. for social and affordable housing. So we estimate at least 40,000 is what is required. Um, and in particular, and this is why we're very critical of the government, mm. the big lack, the big absence in the government housing plan is not enough social and crucially not enough affordable homes mm. because of the, 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 the 25, 26, 27, 28,000 new homes that will be delivered this year. Yeah. large portion of those are very, very expensive uh, built-to-rent apartments in Dublin. There'll also be a, a fair number of 5,000 or so of self-built homes where people are building their own. Mm. But what's missing is the home that the regular working family uh, can either buy at an affordable price or rent, and government aren't delivering those. And until that changes, uh, the private sector can build as many expensive uh, homes to rent or buy as it wants. Okay, but the housing need of working families and the housing need of families reliant on social housing uh, will continue to get worse. Okay, but there's the get, getting the people to build them and getting through the planning process uh, and all of the other obstacles that are, are there. I sure. think uh, the Taunus just said that they're hoping to uh, achieve that target that you've said of 40,000 new units a, a year. Is it possible to get a, a, a above the 28,000 homes that will be built this year? Absolutely. So, uh, first of all, we have tens of thousands of vacant homes all across the state. They are homes that, if we had the right approach from government, uh, we could bring back into use uh, uh, at a more modest cost, uh, more quickly, uh, and with less damage to the environment. Uh, And government has virtually no meaningful targets for tackling vacancy and dereliction. Their new vacant homes tax, for example, won't apply to derelict properties. It makes completely no sense. Likewise, uh, with respect to uh, new building technologies, uh, I've met a number of companies around the country, uh, including some very close to to, to your own uh, uh, county, who are developing really, really high-quality timber-based products for manufacturing homes. And again, they can turn around, you know, an 80 or 90 square uh, uh, metre premises in about 11 or 12 weeks. They can't even get into the government framework agreements for for public housing provision. Uh, It is absolutely crazy. Mm. With respect to the labour force and planning, because they are absolutely issues, uh, there's planning permissions granted already for about 100,000 homes. Um, uh, So our problem isn't 
that there aren't enough planning permissions. Yes, we can improve our planning process, no, no dispute about that, and we're having debates specifically in relation to that in, in the Dáil. But there are uh, uh, sufficient planning permissions now to build the homes that we need, certainly for this year and next year. And with respect to labour force, uh, uh, yes, we do need to grow uh, the labour force, and central to that is restoring... Uh, uh, I suppose, the reputation of the skilled trades in schools and, and in apprenticeships and universities. But there is more that can be done with the existing labour force. So, for example, there are too many construction sector workers building data centres or apart hotels, particularly in Dublin uh, City mm. and County. And they're doing that because there are tax reliefs and tax incentives for investors to, to put their money there. If we close down those tax reliefs and incentives, those workers would be freed up to build what we really, really need, which is affordable homes. Mm. Likewise, particularly with social and affordable housing, I've made a series of proposals to government to reform uh, the way in which those homes are delivered. Uh, There's far too much bureaucracy. It takes too long. Government have ignored those suggestions. Mm. So in terms of the social homes, there's about 20,000 somewhere in the pipeline from planning permissions to, to, to design and procurement. We could accelerate those. And again, crucially, if we did more with vacant homes and derelict homes, more with new building technologies and timber-based products, we could accelerate. Could you do it, you know, to go from, from 20 or 30,000 up to 50,000 overnight? Of course not. Nobody's suggesting okay. that. But these folks have been in government together for six years. How long do they need to start to get a grip on this crisis? Well, that's the next question I was going to ask you. How long would you need? Uh, because uh, I think housing minister after housing minister over the course of the last 10 years, and probably a bit more than that, ha- has seen the numbers worsen. Uh, it's never been worse. House prices are at Celtic Tiger levels and beyond. The cost of rent uh, is the highest it's ever been. Uh, there's more people waiting for social housing than ever before. The homeless figures and those in emergency accommodation are at their worst levels. Uh, but if each housing minister has come in uh, believing that they can solve that problem only to see it worsen, uh, where does that leave you? Because it's quite possible, if not probable, that you will be the next housing minister. How soon could you impact on those figures? Yeah, and it's Einstein's definition of, of madness that uh you keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. But the reason why uh, minister after minister and plan after plan, the housing crisis got worse, is because they're using the wrong policies. So the fundamental uh, thing that we need to learn is if and when there's a change of government uh, and if Sinn Féin uh, is in control of housing, we have to have a radically different set of policies. And that's what we've been outlining uh, for the last number of years. That's why I wrote an entire book specifically to set out what that alternative set of policies would be. Uh, and therefore, uh, uh, for from our point of view, uh, can you start to uh, introduce real meaningful change straight away? Yes, you can. There are short-term, medium-term and longer-term changes uh, 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 that you can affect. Uh, and for example, let's just take one. Let's take vacancy. So Sinn Féin firmly believes that we need about 20,000 new public homes a year. Government is talking about about 13,000 this year. We need 20,000. Well, we think 4,000 of those should be from vacancy derelicts. Uh, and there's already 4,000 additional homes you could deliver in a single year just by putting the money uh, uh, in the right way. Uh, but crucially, to do that, you have to change the delivery system. So local authorities have real difficulties acquiring vacant and derelicts because the Department of Housing won't give them the money until a year or two afterwards. We would give them the funding up front. We would set much, much more ambitious targets. And we'd make sure the councils have the staff to be able to go out and acquire, uh, uh, refurbish and then rent or sell on uh, uh, those vacants. Likewise, for example, the modular building technologies, this is really key. Uh, uh, if you go to London today, for example, London local authorities are delivering really good quality, affordable homes 
using these new building technologies. Uh, uh, there is nothing in the government's housing plan. There is nothing in its support uh, for local authorities. Uh, 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 and there is nothing in changes to building regulations uh, that is encouraging and incentivising the delivery of those high-quality, low-carbon, lower-cost uh, uh, homes that can be faster to deliver. So there are ways of doing this. Uh, lots and lots of countries have housing crises, but nowhere is as bad right now uh, as we are. Uh, and in fact, other jurisdictions uh, are doing things much better. Uh, and that's why we need to start embracing those things. So don't let anybody tell you things can't be done differently. Don't be uh, let, letting anybody tell you that there is no alternative, as Margaret Thatcher used to say. There are alternative policies. There are alternative plans. But what you need is a government that says we have to dramatically increase capital investment. We have to dramatically reform the way in which we deliver uh, social and affordable homes. The affordable homes have to be genuinely affordable. And then there's a whole set of other reforms in terms of the private rental sector, uh, in terms of housing for people with disabilities and other groups that have been excluded from, from the housing market, uh, uh, etc., uh, that need to be introduced. So we do have the policies. Uh, there are lots of other people out there who have very, very smart and sensible things to say about the housing mm. crisis that the government is ignoring. But what is the common feature in those 10 years that you mentioned? Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, who broadly share the same approach to housing, have been in charge. They are the problem. And until they're gone, unfortunately, I fear this problem will continue to get worse. All right. We'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme today. As always, uh, that's Ona O'Brien, who's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on housing. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to North Louth and some road safety concerns raised in the Dáil yesterday. I, I want to know what options are open to um, those parents and the community in and around Belurgan National School in North County Louth. Look, these parents have been campaigning for a considerable amount of time for traffic calming measures. There's an element of me bringing up this issue. It's 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 frustration. Obviously, these parents have been out, and when I say campaigning, that's out before school times. That's alongside elected reps and others, and to a degree, um, stopping traffic, but just making a point of of the dangers that are there. I do believe there's a necessity for the local authority to be somewhat more proactive in relation to this. Um, and I, I, I think that there will need be a need by myself and others um, to deal with the community and that we will have to look at obviously reviewing the speed limits. And I would like to think that the traffic calming measures um, would be considered favourably by the department because this is an absolute necessity. I would say beyond that, when you're talking about that entire stretch of road, and the Minister may know it, it's the run out to the Cooley Peninsula from, from Nundalk, the R173, and I think there probably needs to be an overall review across the board. Right, that's Sinn Féin's Rui Omuraku. He was raising this issue with uh, the Minister for Transport, uh, Eamon Ryan, very familiar with the issue. Do note myself and Minister Nocton were there recently at a very uh, a good Coast Guard event. Uh, so I, I absolutely accept and know the character of the road and, and can, can absolutely see the, the, the need for it. Just to give details that might be useful for, for the Deputy in, in his own uh, um, work on this. Um, just on the safety improvement programme, uh, the grant headings... Um, uh, there are a number of grant headings under the safety improvement. One is for works costing less than 200, and there's a specific grant programme for works costing over 200,000 and less than 5 million. And it's, up to local, it's open to local authorities to use their own resources as well to fund such measures. Specifically with regards to the, uh, the Belurgan National School, 
Uh, I understand that Louth County Council is seeking funding for the provision of traffic calming measures under the safety improvement programme as for, for the uh, National School as part of their 23 application. This, this will be considered for funding under that programme. Local authorities are asked to list proposed projects in order of priority on their application. Loud safety improvement application was received on the 26th of October and listed Bellurgan traffic calming. I think it's 15th out of a total of 24 applications that they have. And our department's engineering inspectors will review the overall application before rec recommendations are made in the allocations. All right, that's uh, the Minister for Transport, Eamon Ryan. Uh, Rio Murku then went on to raise uh, concerns uh, about road safety outside of uh, the Bush Secondary School. I accept the, the Minister is aware of the stretch of road and, and, and in fairness maybe we do have to look at the modalities and the protocols by which we look at, as I say, wider stretches of road that obviously um, have a considerable amount of traffic, have an increased amount of people living on them, etc. And, and obviously schools that are thriving and we need to ensure that they are safe places um, for parents, children and, and all others um, in, involved. And, and I know that, um, as I say, Anton Waters would have been at a meeting the other day in relation to uh, the Bush School, also in, in, in that particular region. And again, the issue is in relation to um, in relation to traffic calming and in relation to safety measures. Uh, again, uh, an issue that the Minister was familiar with. And just in relation to that school at Bush, my understanding is Louth County Council has indicated that there's currently planned redevelopment of the school and the Council is waiting clarity on the detail of the public road interface uh, in relation to the Bush. That in the, it would be open to the Council to seek funding under the appropriate grants programme in that regard if they wish to do so. It seems to me it's the right time to do it when the school has been redeveloped to, to, to manage the traffic issue at the same time. It is an issue on that entire road. Very wide, very high speeds, increasing volumes. It does need to be changed. Right, that's the Minister for Transport, Damon Ryan. And given the level of concern locally, perhaps some room for optimism there, some scope for hope uh, given how seriously that's been taken at that level. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you were listening to us uh, yesterday, you'd have heard the results of uh, that uh, FORSA survey of its members. I really found it incredibly shocking. Fun, hard to get it out of my head, in fact. Uh, 3,000 respondents. Uh, of uh, the 3,000 respondents, 85% of them were women. Uh, about a third of them said uh, that they had suffered some sort of abuse. Uh, 95% of those who said they were abused uh, were abused at home. Uh, and indeed, uh, they found workplace to be a refuge of sorts to get away from that type of uh, abuse. It really is beyond belief that a, a third of women, as I said on the programme yesterday, are the subject of abuse and it follows that a third of men are abusing those women. Uh, and the reason I mention that is because I wanted to, to uh, read a text to you that came to us yesterday uh, just after that conversation that I didn't get to read out on the programme from a man that was listening to us and he, he said, He'd been listening to that discussion and he's a man who spends days sitting in his car to get away from verbal abuse. He says that there are men in this situation I can't tell my family as I've become the boy who cried wolf and I've returned time and time again. I don't have anywhere to go and it's not just women. Well, thank you for making that point as strongly as you did uh, and indeed uh, for the subsequent texts uh, that followed and the conversation that we had. 
Uh, on that subject, uh, let's talk uh, about abuse uh, again, perhaps from a somewhat different angle. Women's Aid is launching a new website, 2intoyou.ie, as you've been hearing in uh, the bulletins uh, today. Uh, it's aimed predominantly at young people and predominantly at young women. Uh, let's uh, speak to Mary Hayes, who's uh, the project lead with 2 Into You. And a very good morning to you, Mary, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Uh, you want to raise the red flag as you put it, particularly for young women, about unhealthy relationships. Uh, many of them, I gather from your survey, may not even be aware that they're in an unhealthy relationship. Absolutely. You know, when we think about things like relationship abuse, domestic violence, we think of it happening to older women, you know, women who are living with an abusive partner. Maybe they're married, maybe they have children. Um, but we know from our research that actually you don't have to be living with someone for them to be abusive towards you. And abuse, in fact, can happen when you're young and it can even happen in your first relationship. So we found, you know, from our work uh, with young women and our research that abuse, relationship abuse is actually quite common. And so it's one in five young women aged 18 to 25 have been abused by a current or former male partner. And I think for a lot of them, they don't, um, recognize the red flags of abuse. They don't see things like relationship abuse happening to them. They see it as something happening to older people. Um, so that's what we're trying to do with the campaign is to raise awareness. And you're talking about people, women predominantly aged between 18 and 24, uh, many of whom have never heard of the term coercive control, uh, about a fifth. Um, but what is coercive control? Yeah, so coercive control, it's its a pattern of deliberate abuse um, that takes place over time. And it can contain, you know, different forms of abuse, like physical abuse, emotional, sexual, um, economic abuse, online abuse. And really what it does is it leaves you feeling intimidated and very isolated and dependent on an abusive partner. And it can make you feel very, very trapped. Um, so, you know, they might do things like uh, try and isolate you from your friends. So for young people, a very simple example is if, you know, the person you're going out with complains that you spend too much time with their, with your friends or they say they hate your friends yeah. or you don't spend enough time with them. Um, so then you feel like you owe them, you know, all your time so that they will love you in return. But actually, that's a red flag for abuse and it's very controlling. Mm. Um, another thing that we would see is, you know, things like relationship abuse, course of control, moving into online spaces. Um, you know, for those women, one in five who were subjected to abuse, one in two had experienced online abuse. And online abuse can feel really draining because there's no mm. escape from it. You know, young people are on their phones all the time. And that should be a place where they connect with friends, you know, they um, connect with pop culture. It's supposed to be a space of enjoyment. But actually, if somebody is in an abusive relationship, their partner may, you know, bombard them with messages. They might harass them on their social media um, or they might, you know, threaten to share intimate images, things like that, which is now a crime. Or or, or post-compromising photographs, as the case may be. Or getting back to that issue of control, Uh, and this coercive relationship that some people may be in, they may demand that they read private messages and so on and find out who you're talking to and what you're talking about. Absolutely, and that's one of the things that we hear all the time from young people. Um, But they see it as something that's really normal in a relationship. You know, oh, it's normal to let your 
um, partner or the person you're going out with, you know, look through your phone to know your password. But actually, you know, that's an invasion of privacy. And in a healthy relationship, there's trust. And the person you're going out with trusts you and doesn't need to know, you know, who you're talking to all the time. They respect your independence and your need to chat to whoever you want to. Mm, Yeah, and wear whatever you want to. Absolutely, yeah. That would be another red flag is, you know, if the person you're going out with tells you what to wear or, you know, complains about how you look or criticizes you and constantly puts you down. Um, And it can be really insidious. You know, they can Mm. say it in ways like, I just have better style than you. You know, maybe you should wear this or you look so nice when you wear this. And this often happens as well very early on in the relationship. Um, And it's actually um, called negging. So this is a term that we use. um, It's a red flag of abuse that happens Mm. um, at the start of a relationship. And it can be very hard to spot because often it's dismissed as, you know, flirting or um, banter and things like that. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, a lot of these things are hard to spot in isolation and in the early stages, but they can be the beginning of a a bigger picture, uh, which can lead to all sorts of control and abuse. Absolutely. You know, the longer you're in an abusive relationship, the harder it can be to leave. And, you know, coercive control in particular, it can make you feel, you know, completely trapped in an abusive relationship and it Mm. can have a huge impact, um, especially for, you know, young people, young women who are beginning to make their way in the world. It can impact your emotional uh, well-being, your physical well-being. And, you know, it can lead to, um, you know, giving up work, mm. education, being isolated, things like that. And there's a lack of knowledge about coercive control uh, and indeed uh, the significance or, or, or the gravity of being guilty of it. It's a criminal offence. Uh, now, it's not a, an offence to be looking at somebody else's messages, especially uh, if uh, they've given you permission to do it. Uh, but can you explain to us when it becomes an offence? Coercive well, control, suppose- that is. Yeah, so so coercive control, you know, it's defined as a pattern. So really that's what differentiates it. Because, you know, um, having disagreements or um, little things here and there, you know, with friends, family, the person you're going out with, that's very normal. But it's when it becomes a pattern over time that's consistent, that's when it would be seen as coercive control. And that was what was really worrying in our research, was that, you know, so one in five had never heard of coercive control and one in four believed that it's not a criminal offence, even though it's been a crime since 2019. And that's particularly worrying because uh, one in six young women have been subjected to coercive control. So, you know, that's why with our campaign Two Into You, we're trying to raise awareness of the fact that things like relationship abuse, these red flags, coercive control are serious, Mm. they're a crime, they need to be taken seriously and that young people feel protected by the laws that are there and also to know that they're not alone and that there are specific supports available for them at the 2into.ie website. All right, that's 2into.ie. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning, Mary uh, Mary Hayes, uh, the project lead with 2into.ie, which uh, has been launched now by Women's Aid. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, just a, a few comments coming to us uh, today. Let me share with you what people have been saying to us. Stephen in Drogheda has been in touch. Uh, he tells us that he's been on the housing waiting list for the last number of years. He's a single person and he wonders when the system will ever change for single people uh, and uh, allow them to get somewhere to live. Uh, very difficult, uh, undoubtedly, uh, when uh, you're competing with families and so on. Uh, but uh, Stephen says he, he was an electrician himself. Uh, He reckons it takes up to four to six weeks to build a three standard bedroom house. That would seem incredibly quick, uh, Stephen. Is that true? I don't know. Maybe somebody else uh, has uh, more information on that than I do. But uh, Stephen, obviously well informed as somebody who worked in the trade. Um, We'd uh, somebody else in touch with us, Tom and Navin. Uh, who says he nearly choked on his cornflakes this morning. He said, did I hear Ono Brin reference Margaret Thatcher on the programme? (laughs) Tom wonders if the whole world has gone mad. Thanks uh, for that, Tom. Uh, Actually, uh, following on from uh, that interview with Sinn Féin's Ono Brin uh, this morning, somebody else says, yet again, Michael allows a Sinn Féin politician rabbit away without interruption or contradiction. What a coward. Thank you uh, for the feedback. I'm not sure uh, who the coward is meant to be in that comment, uh, whether that's me or Owen O'Brien, but uh, I doubt it's either, really, is it? Is it? Um, thank you, though, if you have been in touch. If you've not been in touch, if you'd like to make comment on the programme today, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is, as always, 041-983-2000. That's 041-983-2000. You can text us or you can send us a, a text message on WhatsApp. That's 0861800658 if you want to text or WhatsApp. 0861800658. And as always, you can email michael at lmfm. Now, there's a, a couple in draw who are in a situation none of us uh, would like to be in at the moment. Uh, this is Aaron and Sheila Nolte. Uh, they're living in Marley's Court in a social housing in a local authority house in Drogheda. They've been living in the house uh, since September of last year and uh, they have to move out on Monday. Uh, the councillor wants uh, to take possession of the house and they've been told that they have to be out by Monday. Uh, I've been hearing more about this story from Aaron's brother, Keen. Okay, well, we'll start off by saying in September 2021, uh, my mother took sick um, very quickly. And we soon found out that she was diagnosed with cancer. Mm. Um, we found out about two months after that that she, she had two forms of really rare aggressive cancer mm. and there was no treatment for her. And you, you you lost your mother in January, I think, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, my mum died in 26th of January. Yeah, yeah. Condolences on that, obviously. Thank you. So yeah. it, it's been a, a pretty a pretty tough year anyway. Yeah. But um, as soon as my mum was sick, Aaron stepped up. He moved home straight away. He sent in the forms to become a tenant in Marley's Court in the, in the family home. Um, we cared for mum that... 95% of the time at home. Yeah. Um, so that that's a year and two months ago that Aaron moved in uh, and yeah, uh, applied yeah. for tenancy? Yeah. Okay. Now, when we had a meeting with Loud County Council, they said that they cannot find the paperwork that was submitted in September 2021. Right. Now, I was there when the forms were filled in. It was signed by my mum, it was signed by Aaron and his wife. Mm. Um. I feel, uh, to be honest, I feel like the family have been punished because my mum's diagnosis and her untimely death don't meet their policy. Mm. So but we've 
we've tried to get Aaron a new house, like somewhere for, that he can call home that he can rent, mm-hmm. and there's nothing available. Okay, uh, and just to uh, explain to people listening, um, Aaron has been living in the house since September of this uh, year. Your mother died in January, yeah. uh, and uh, he's to move out on Monday, is it? Yeah, as far as I know, he's to, do, he's to move out on Monday. Um, the, the council, like, the council is reclaiming the house. Yeah, to want to reclaim the house, but Aaron and his wife have nowhere to go. Hmm. And that's been explained to the council. Yeah, we have asked for assistance from the council, and we ha- we haven't received any assistance. Right. Okay. What 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 have you been told? Um, because uh, as I understand it, um, from a statement that we received from the council, Aaron and his wife are going to have to move out on Monday and uh, that they don't have any rights as such. Uh, the council say that they don't comment on individual cases, so they're not talking specifically about Aaron's situation, but they say that you have had to have been living in the house for at least two years and that you have to be included on the rent declaration form uh, for at least two years and that you also have to be eligible for social housing. So it doesn't bode well. No, no, it doesn't. But, like, I, I understand... Their, their their case doesn't meet the policy, but their county council can't turn around and say, right, well, they have to get out and just turf them out onto the street. Mm. We have enough homelessness in this country without adding more to it, and especially to people yeah. who have who have additional needs. And how long has the family been in Marley's Court? The family have been in Marley's Court since 2000. Right. 22 years. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and when would Aaron have last lived there before moving back in in September? Um, Aaron would have, I think it was officially, like when he lived in the house, I think mm. it was 2008, 2009. Right, yeah. But we had a system set up in the house that if Aaron became unwell, without going into too many yeah. details about mm. Aaron's backstory, if Aaron became unwell, he could come home and myself and my mum would care for him. Yeah, yeah. You screw up in the house uh, to a yeah, large degree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and now uh, the the family home is going to someone else. Aaron and his wife uh, will be on the streets come Monday. Uh, and as far as you're concerned, at this point in time, uh, there's no other option. No, there is no other option. Like my house isn't big enough. I have four people living in my house. My house isn't big enough to add two more people. Okay. Okay, you're speaking on behalf of Aaron today uh, as his brother, obviously, Keen. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not more we can do for you, uh, nothing else other than highlight the issue. Uh, perhaps you'd like to speak to somebody listening to us who might be able to help you, whether that's the council or somebody else. Yeah, yeah. I, I take, look, I'd accept any help. I've personally tried to contact representatives in Lower County Council to talk to for me to talk to them. Try and get them to understand that, like... It's a husband, a husband and wife. They can't. Aaron won't survive living on the street. Okay, you're obviously very, very worried. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do 
not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I am. I'm very frightened of what, like, I promised my mom before she died that I'd look after him, and it's tough. Okay. As I say, Keane, all we can do is highlight the situation for you. If uh, we get a response from anyone, uh, we'll put them in touch with you. We'll get in touch uh, with everyone who makes contact with us, uh, and... uh, uh, hopefully uh, there'll be some sort of uh, resolution before the end of the weekend. Uh, and uh, thanks for taking the time to tell us the story. No problem, Michael. Listen, thank you for giving me the time. Okay. Uh, it's a funny country we're living in at the moment, isn't it? Uh, that's uh, Keen Nolte speaking on behalf of his brother Aaron and Aaron's wife, Sheila, uh, who will be homeless um forced, if you like, uh, to move out of what they would have considered to be the family home for the last 20 years. Uh, on Monday, uh, if uh, you've any suggestions or thoughts on that uh, for the family, our telephone number 0419832000, text WhatsApp 0861800658, email michael at lmfm.ie. Indeed, uh, those numbers, obviously, uh, if uh, there is something that you would like to talk to us uh, about a, a separate issue, perhaps. Uh, we've been talking uh, about late night licensing hours and pubs opening till half twelve, isn't it, and the nightclubs till six o'clock in the morning. Eric Cuthbert uh, in touch with us a, a couple of times. Uh, thanks for getting back to us, uh, not, not, not allowing us uh, to forget uh, your thoughts on this, Eric. Thank you indeed, and apologies for not uh, coming to your text earlier in the week. He says, uh, the government should give this a, a trial run for a, a month or so and see how it goes. Uh, yeah, there may not be as many problems as people were anticipating, given uh, what we're hearing from Heineken uh, and uh, the increase in the price of the pint 
and that generally speaking uh, you could be talking about six euro for a pint of Heineken and I take it that could go up to eight or nine in a nightclub uh, but uh, that's just part of the world that we're living in speaking of the world that we're living in and uh, the increase in the price of living uh, the latest inflation uh, rate consumer price index at 9.2% uh, a lot of pressure on a lot of people we'll be hearing more about that a little bit later on in uh, the programme but uh, let's hear a little bit uh, about next month's Taoiseach now Tanishta, I know that today you'll be feeling relieved that Sipo has announced it will not be investigating your leak of a draft GP contract to one of your friends back in April 2019 in a statement last night you said you had been cleared of quote any breach of ethics or standards now I can understand why you said that But I think it would be a lot more accurate to state that SIPO has decided it doesn't have the authority to investigate this matter. SIPO noted that you had said your leak of the contract was done in your capacity as Taoiseach and it said it has no remit to inquire into the extent of the powers of the Office of Taoiseach. It's also important to mention that this was not a unanimous decision by SIPO. Two of the commissioners were of the view that they could investigate you. A sixth recused herself. Serious questions for Leo Vratker from uh, the Social Democrat co-leader Roisin Chortall. Uh, will we hear a little bit of the response now? Just because I was under investigation at the time, and I'm not by anyone anymore, by the way, uh, just because I was un- under investigation at the time, you didn't think I was fit to be elected Taoiseach uh, or to serve in Cabinet. That's fine. That's your view. You're entitled to that view. Does that view extend to Sinn Féin? If it is the case that any Sinn Féin politician is under investigation by a public body when the next election comes, will you apply the same standard to them? Will you say the Social Democrats will not allow such a person to serve in Cabinet? Or do you have a different standard for them than you have for us? Eh? <laughs> so well, some confusion. Uh, Fine Gael here. Fine Gael's role. OK, so let's keep, let, let's keep the focus. Let, let's keep the focus there. Let's hold on. Sorry, let's keep the focus there. Tanishta, I asked you a question. Are you satisfied that SIPO is sufficiently empowered to investigate the decisions of Tishik when necessary? I'd appreciate an answer to that. And I also asked when we're likely to see the publication of updated ethics legislation. Right. Uh, Roisin Shortall asking uh, the Tanish uh, uh, about uh, uh, investigations into Leo Radker. You'd wonder why she wasn't satisfied when he talked about Mary Lou Macdonald and Sinn Féin. But when it comes to standards, when it comes to ethics, when it comes to code of conduct, I absolutely believe that the Standards Commission should be a strength in, in that regard. But uh, I am disappointed you didn't answer my question because it does belie what I, what I suspected. Uh, the Social Democratic Party is a party to the left. It has lower standards for people who are on the left. Uh, what she said on the radio was that I shouldn't serve in government just because I was under investigation, even though I've subsequently been cleared. Why will the Social Democrats, why will the Social Democrats not apply the same standards for Sinn Féin? And I do hope that when you're doing future interviews, uh, journalists will press you on this matter. Because you're a hypocrite, Roisin. Because you're a hypocrite, that's why. A hypocrite? Okay, right. Hold on. Can anybody remember what the first question was? Was it about Sinn Féin? 
Um, I, 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 I've forgotten. Um, uh, but you heard clearly Leo Bradker called Roisin Shorthall a hypocrite. The tonish made about me earlier on uh, impugn my character, integrity and good name. I'm seeking the protection of the chair and for the Thornish to withdraw those comments, please. I'd ask you to withdraw those comments. I'd be happy to withdraw them because I don't particularly want to have a row with the deputy over this. Um, but I would like to note two things. Uh, she didn't answer my question uh, as to whether she'll apply a different standard to Sinn Féin. Um, uh, I also feel, Deputy, that she, she impugned my character. I'd like to put that on the record and perhaps you'd rule on, rule on that too. And secondly, I did note uh, that little bit like the leader of the opposition, uh, you challenge her and she threatens to sue you. There's one issue here in relation to alleging or calling the deputy a hypocrite. I didn't want to go into the salient rulings, but they're here. You're precluded from doing that. It's not acceptable. And I'm asking you, will you withdraw that, please? Yes. Will you withdraw that? Um, I'll I'll withdraw and replace with the term double standards. Hmm. Okay. I'm asking you to withdraw the word I've done it twice. I've done it twice. Double standards. Purveyor of double standards. All right. Uh, A sincere Tarnished at Leo Radker speaking in the Dáil yesterday. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, today is Adult Safeguarding Day, which is coordinated by Safeguarding Ireland and supported by the HSE. Let's speak to Bridget McDade, who is the Senior Safeguarding and Older Persons Officer with the HSE's National Safeguarding Office. Good morning to you, Bridget, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. We were speaking yesterday on this programme with Forza and found the results of of a survey of their members to be quite shocking in that one third of some 3,000 people who responded to the survey said that they had been abused in some form at some stage in their lives. You're publishing a, a Red Sea poll today uh, to coincide with Adult Safeguarding Day and the findings of this poll are even more dramatic and concerning. Yeah, so we have a, a Red Sea poll out today which is showing that um, of those adults surveyed, 44% had actually experienced adult abuse themselves and an even higher figure of 66% knew somebody who had experienced adult abuse. Right. Um, so it's really showing us that there is a lot of adult abuse happening out there and there's concerns that people are not adequately equipped or know how to respond or who to go to for support. Um, the Red Sea poll also found that um, 41% of those people who had experienced abuse didn't uh, didn't do anything about it, and half of those said they w- weren't sure what to do about it. Mm. Um, so today's campaign is really trying to address that in terms of yeah. creating awareness that there is support out there, there are avenues that people can go to to respond to abuse like this, and also highlight the, highlighting the importance of respecting adults' decision-making. Well, maybe you'd explain what you mean when you say abuse like this, uh, because abuse takes many forms, doesn't it? That's right. So, I mean, really, I suppose safeguarding is all about human rights. And so what we see with abuse, um, abuse is happening when a person's rights, their independence or their dignity are not respected. And that might be deliberate acts, or it might be an omission, or it might be lack of information. But regardless, it is abuse. And I suppose people are potentially more at risk of abuse at times of difficulty in their life. So whether that's due to frailty that that may be age related or whether people who have a disability, be it physical, intellectual and acquired brain injury, may find uh, that they're in 
more difficult situations where abuse might happen. And mm. then the, the types of abuse, there's, there's many types of abuse, but what we're seeing is psychological abuse, physical, financial abuse. It could be sexual, it could be online abuse, and of course neglect as well, where people are not um, getting the basic requirements they need, maybe in terms of, of health, medication, in terms of warmth and food, things like that. Mm. And... This uh, uh, survey relates to adults who were abused as adults. That's right. Yeah, right, we are yeah. we are looking at adults. We've also were found. You, I'm, I'm sorry. I just wanted to ask you: were, were, were you surprised by the findings? Were you expecting such a, a, a huge um, percentage of adults uh, to have been subjected to some form of abuse as an adult? It's surprising in one way, but but. You know, within the HSE, we have been dealing with the area of adult abuse for a number of years. And we do know from within our own services and from prevalence studies that have been done in Ireland that the issue is underreported. So what we're seeing in the HSE is that we had in the order of 11,000 referrals last year where adults, uh, where there was a concern of adult abuse. Mm. Um, but we know from the prevalence studies that that really isn't the true picture, that the real figure is is, is much higher than that. Mm. Um, it, it, it's beyond belief. I mean, you know, head-scratching stuff. What's wrong with this? Almost half of us have been abused as adults and almost half of those who've been abused have done nothing about it, have not reported 44 and 41% the uh, actual yeah. figures, yeah. And there's many, there's many factors that feed into that reluctance maybe to report it or lack mm. of awareness about where to report it. But, you know, some of it comes around to maybe the type of abuse that's being, um, that's being perpetrated on somebody and the context within which it's happening. So if you take, for example, abuse happening within a family context, mm. we have a huge culture of secrecy and, and impo- huge importance placed on family privacy. And also there's an element of people not wanting to, maybe to admit that it's happening or maybe not recognising it as abuse, yeah. or a fear of not being believed as mm. well. So there's lots of different factors. Or, or, fam- or, or fa- family members discouraging, if not appealing to you, um, not to report it. For sure, yeah, particularly when it's happening within that context of a family. Um, we also see abuse happening in other contexts as well, be it within services or within other relationships. Um, but the really important message is that there is help available. Mm. And, and also that... In reporting it, the approach that we take and that the social workers take who who deal with these cases of abuse is that it's very much about reassuring people to come forward to seek help and that we will work with you to respect your wishes in terms of how you want to respond because Mm. that's not our decision to make. It's really for adults to think how do they want to respond to this concern and to to have a safe space to talk about that and to explore what the options might be and to be given support then to, to make decisions. I'm sure you quite often hear from people who will say to you, what's the point? Uh, I mean, if, it, if it's sexual uh, abuse, for example, it's word against word. Uh, if it's something like bullying, uh, it can be very subtle and very difficult to put your finger on it, pinpoint it uh, and prove it. I think as well, when you're in the middle of this situation yourself, it, it can be very hard to see the way out. But there's always support available. Um, And there's lots of different avenues of support available. It's not just, you know, the HSE, but obviously in some of the examples you spoke about there, the Gardaí would be involved. But again, I suppose the important point is that it's for adults to be given a safe space to think about how they want to respond to this and what type of support they'd like to see happening. Um, We do try and give the message as well um, 
that, you know, if anybody is in an immediate risk of harm, if there's an emergency situation, the emergency services are there, whether it's the Gardaí, ambulance. Um, and then there might be other, maybe less immediate concerns that you might want to go to your local Garda station about. And then, of course, the HSE service is there as well for ongoing concerns where you can speak in confidence to a social worker and try and explore the options and avenues that might be available in terms of how to proceed. Okay. You said the vast majority of us uh, know somebody who's been abused. Two thirds of us, in fact, 66%. Uh, Tell us a, a little bit more about that situation. So I suppose when we think about all the different types of abuse that we've seen within the Red Sea Pole and within the HSE service itself, abuse is happening across a whole different level of arenas. So whether it's somebody's being financially abused, they might be, maybe their pension is being spent on something else or somebody else, and they're not getting access to their resources, they might be put under financial pressure in terms of property or inheritance, issues like that. Um, We've had issues of physical abuse where people are being maybe restrained, um, where there's assault, you know, hitting, kicking, Mm. there might be medication mismanagement. um, You've mentioned the sexual abuse. Mm. Um, and coercive control as well I suppose we're seeing where um, even outside of a, a, a intimate relationships where there might be coercive control happening within families as well um, and I certainly our, our social work service are seeing that and, and helping people to respond within those situations mm. So two thirds of us uh, are aware of somebody who is being abused, or were aware uh, at some stage that somebody was uh, the subject of uh, abuse. But only half of the two thirds of people uh, did something about it, acted on it. That's right. That's right. And I think you know when we, I, I think part of it is people maybe not having an awareness of where to go and who might be able to support them and help them. And then part of it might be those other issues we spoke about in terms of secrecy and also wanting to protect the perpetrator mm. can also be a can also be an issue as well. Yeah. Um, we've often find in situations of adult abuse, particularly where there's a relationship between the parties, that the adult will want the abuse to stop, but they want to protect their relationship with their whether it's their adult son or daughter or somebody else in their family, that they really want to try and preserve and protect that relationship and rebuild it. Mm. And so we work to try and support people to do that. Okay. Uh, Today you're asking people to think uh, about a couple of things. Uh, One of uh, the more important aspects uh, about Adult Safeguarding Day today is uh, to understand people's right to make decisions for themselves. Yeah, that's really important because that comes to the heart of how abuse happens when people's decisions and wishes aren't being respected. And also about recognising that even where people might have some limitations on their decision-making capacity, we still have to respect their right to make decisions and respect their right to take risk in their life. Um, And the more we can do that, that's a really important part of preventing abuse from happening in the first place where we can respect people's decision-making. Okay, and if you're uh, aware uh, that somebody is being abused or if you're being abused yourself, uh, you'd ask people to report it? Absolutely. So you can either seek immediate attention from the Gardaí, you could go to your local Garda station, and then the HSE safeguarding and protection teams are all around the country. There's nine teams around the country. So their details are on hse.ie forward slash safeguarding, or indeed you could call the HSE 
um, live information line on 1800 700 700 to get details of the social work service in your area. Okay. Well, uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe um, we're all aware of uh, abuse and somebody being abused or being abused ourselves, but uh, I think the scale of it is uh, very hard <laughs> to uh, contemplate. Uh, it, it's hard to believe that uh, close to half of adults have been abused as adults and uh, so many people are aware of it and so many people not acting uh, to do anything uh, about it. Bridget, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, and uh, undoubtedly uh, people will uh, heed some of uh, the advice uh, that you've given to us today and thanks as I say for joining us. Bridget McDade, Senior Safe Guarding and Older Persons Officer with the HSE's National Safeguarding Office. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, I did ask for your help. I, I was wondering what the original question was after we listened to Leo Radker talking for a, a long time. He was responding to Roisin Shortall of the Social Democrats, but the whole thing did get a, a little bit confused and by the end of it all, I honestly had forgotten what the question was and thanks to the listener who tells us uh, that Roisin Shortall had had actually been asking the Taunashtia about being investigated by Sippo and that Sippo said that they couldn't investigate him because he was the Taoiseach at the time and that Sippo does not have any jurisdiction over the Taoiseach's office or the behaviour of any Taoiseach and that's why they couldn't investigate him. And thank you indeed for that. Somebody else uh, hadn't forgotten what the question was and has texted us saying uh, that he's obsessed with Sinn Féin. The question had nothing to do with them. He knows the goose is cooked and Sinn Féin will get in in the next election and it curdles his blood. Tom in Navin says that was disgraceful from Leo Vratker. Michael, could someone put all of these disgraceful recordings of politicians, just like the one that we heard this morning from Leo Vratker, together to remind us uh, come the next general election. Thank you indeed, uh, Tom. Uh, how many lifetimes would we need, though, if we were to listen to them back? I think that's the next question. Anyway, let's uh, talk about something completely different because, as I'm sure you heard, uh, the Consumer Price Index, the CSO, says has risen to 9.2% over the course of the last year. So what does this mean? Prices for consumer goods and services rose by 9.2% in the last 12 months. This is the highest rate of inflation since 1984 and was up on the figure of 8.2% recorded in September 2022. Household energy costs were the main drivers of the change, with the cost of gas up by over 93%, electricity up by over 71%, and home heating oil prices up by 65%. Food prices also saw increases over the last 12 months, with whole milk up by 25%, butter up 19%, and bread up 16% when compared with this time last year. Right, uh, those figures coming to us uh, from uh, the CSO and Central Statistics Office statistician Anthony Dawson there. Let's uh, talk about the impact of this on daily life. We're joined by Neve Kelly, who's uh, the policy manager with One Family, which supports single parent households. Good morning to you, Neve, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, I suppose uh, you don't need to hear the statistics, you just have to look at the figures on the the till when you get to them in the supermarkets to, to understand that food has gone up as much as we've just heard and indeed the bills coming through the house uh, for gas and electricity, oil and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we we see, you know, everybody's seeing the, the rise in prices, but I suppose for us our, our real concern is around families that we represent 
you know, the, the most recent recent figures um, from last year tell us that the children in, who are living in one-parent households are five times more likely to experience deprivation and four times more likely to be living in consistent poverty. So if you think of that being last year, mm. they've since had, you know, almost 10% of inflation in that, that period. So it is it's having a massive impact on those families. And, you know, parents are telling us things like that, you know, they can't afford to... They're, they're having to make a choice between heating and food. They can't afford to um, shop in the shops they used to shop or that they're, you know, they're telling us that they're using, they're shopping just in the, the expired aisle of, of supermarkets and things like that. There's really no more tightening of belts that can happen. These families already had the belts as tight, and tight as it could go. Mm. Uh, are people uh, making really tough decisions. I mean, when you hear about the increases in things like uh, milk and bread, uh, we're talking about some of uh, the fundamentals in any household. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, these are things that, you know, when you have children in the household, you, you, you can't cut back on their food. And many fam- you know, for many parents, the choice would be cutting back on their own food to make sure that their children have enough food going into school. Um, and things like cutting back on heating, cutting back on, on electricity where they can. But as I say, for, for many families, they were already doing that. You know, they're already living in that scenario. So we're really concerned. And we, we it this kind of underlines what we were saying after the budget. Mm. Um, we were very concerned with the fact that there were no targeted measures for one-parent families in, in Budget 2023. Um, and to us, when we have such high rates of poverty and such high rates of deprivation in these families, that was really um, concerning that the government took that choice. And while, you know, families do benefit from some of the universal measures that were introduced, yeah. the lack of targeted measures um, really means that come January, you know, that money will be spent. And for many families, the, the money that they received in the budget will go to plug a gap that already existed. Mm. Um, and that really going into next year, they have nothing um, and they are, you know, behind where they would have been, far behind where they would have been even last year. Does it frustrate you at all, Neve, that the front pages of uh, the newspapers uh, this morning are, are dominated by the price of a pint? Um, I Look, you know, it, it, the cost is rising everywhere and mm. I think that, you know, people are interested in where it affects them. Uh, but I suppose there are other areas, you know, there are things like for for one-parent families who are, have a child maintenance arrangement, for example, they might have made that arrangement two, three years ago. So if you think of the amount of money that was decided upon at that point that would um, be sufficient for that child, that's lost a massive amount of, of um, value over those, those years. Um, would um, would, would they generally years. not? Would those, would those payments not generally increase in line with inflation, though? No, because um, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners are aware, there's no child maintenance system in this country. So a lot of the arrangements are made, you know, on Mm. an individual basis between parents. Sometimes they're made um, in the court. So Mm. where they're made privately between parents, you know, sometimes the parent doesn't want to or isn't in a position to go back and say, I need you to increase the Mm. payment. Where they're made by the courts, it requires going back to court, which is also expensive. Okay. Um, and that can also, you know, in terms of the family relationship, if things are going well, that can be very, um, it can be like setting off a bomb in, in the family to take mm. someone back to court to increase the payment. So okay. It's not always the case, though. I think the courts will, uh, on occasion at least, uh, 
put into the agreement uh, that uh, payments would increase in line with inflation? Yeah, I mean, it would have to be within the original agreement, but yeah. mm-hmm. for so many families, it's done it's done privately because mm-hmm. there is no system. Uh, and um, you've, you have to arrange it between themselves. And there's a two-way street there, isn't there? Uh, because uh, if, if you were getting X amount a, a year ago, it, it doesn't have the same value this year. Uh, but if you go back looking for more, uh, perhaps uh, the other half hasn't had a, a pay increase, increase in line with inflation. Absolutely. And that that's why we would like to see, um, well, first... Off. There's a there's a, a report with the minister at the moment um, that we would like to see published into child maintenance. Mm. Um, the minister's had it since April and it hasn't been published. But ultimately, we would like to see an independent agency who is dealing with that so mm. that they could um, make the arrangements and they could look at everyone's circumstances and come to a, a fair a, an agreement that was fair for everybody. And that child maintenance shouldn't be means tested and it shouldn't be taxed. It should be treated like. Um, child benefits, you know, in the same way, it's a payment for the child. It's not a, it's not a payment for the parent, parent, or it shouldn't be. Okay, the price of meat has increased, it would seem, by between ten and fifteen percent. Beef, pork, lamb, poultry, uh, and we have heard uh, that people are doing without meat or doing without meat uh, on some days of the week. Yeah, I mean, that is linked to the deprivation indicators that we have. You know, there's certain things that are looked at to um, to monitor and see if somebody is, is living in deprivation. So being able to afford meat is, is one of the, the areas, things like not being able to afford two good pairs of shoes, a warm winter coat. These kind of things um, are signs of deprivation. So the families are having to cut back on that. You know, it does mm. mean, it does represent that more and more families are being pushed into deprivation yeah. um, and are living without. And it's one thing on top of the other, of course, uh, and I'm sure everybody is acutely aware of all of the increases and you can't take anything in isolation. Uh, and if it was just a, a case of getting to the tills and rubbing uh, your pennies together because of uh, the increases in food, that would be one thing. But you know that you're going there with less money because you're paying more for your electricity or your heating. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is, uh, I suppose, all-encompassing at the moment and families are feeling overwhelmed um, and they're, you know, they're feeling like they're at risk of going, going under. Um, and what, what we would have liked to see in the budget was more recognition of this. So, for example, there was a €2 Euro increase um, for families in receipt of social payment per child. Mm. I mean, if you think of €2 Euros a week, to, you know, when milk is going up by 25% and, and your heating is going up by 70% and the cost of, you know, just feeding and clothing a child has gone up so much, two euros is really a, a pittance. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would have liked to see more targeted support. So, you know, there's universal payments made to families who are feeling the cost of living crisis, but they can weather the storm. You know, they're able to afford it. Yeah. So you have families receiving um, and, and households receiving payments that don't need it. Meanwhile, you have the households that are most at risk of poverty who are really, really struggling and they just didn't get enough attention. Um, so what we, we were calling on the government to, to look at the social welfare bill and examine the payment um, that was increased to the 12 euro payment across social welfare and look at putting it in line or closer in line, at least with inflation. Um, and and including some targeted supports for one-parent families. Okay, Neve, we'll leave there for the moment. Thank you, though, for joining us on the programme today. Neve Kelly is the policy manager for One Family, One Family Support Single Parent Households. 
Now, Mark McSharry, uh, former Fianna Fáil TD, now independent, has uh, been making the news quite a, a lot. Uh, indeed, uh, because he was uh, expected uh, to be brought back into the Fianna fold and then wasn't and uh, has been very critical of how all of that has been held or um, dealt with. Uh, he's also been very critical of, of how he's been treated as an independent in the Dáil. Uh, and uh, made his views on this very much known uh, to the last Kionkora this week. I don't know what the point of order is, Deputy. Well, you haven't allowed me to tell you yet. You yeah. haven't allowed me to tell you yet. So the point of order, and it is very specifically, and I know the rules, a point of order, is that on questions and promise legislation, we're all entitled to make our case to be involved. And for over a year now, you that's, have that's not a point with of your order. it certainly is yeah, that is not a it point. certainly Deputy, is, that is not you a have point consistently of put me into Deputy, the last Deputy, three Deputy. where i'm lucky to get 30 seconds while others enjoy the benefit of celebrating Deputy, the local sausage manufacturers Deputy, and the prizes they win Deputy, for a minute and 10 seconds Deputy, i haven't the slightest Deputy, intention until you show Deputy, a little bit less discrimination and positively discriminate people for actual independence rather than those like yourself Deputy, who you join and form de facto Deputy, parties and get to speak three or four times every day. I'm just asking that Deputy, I might get more than 30 seconds every two order. weeks. Deputy, and I wish that you would you study the standing orders Deputy, and accept the fact that this is a very legitimate point so that people can make a case to say a few you. words and Thank that everybody is discriminated against equally and with and the microphone was cut off and the doll suspended. Tom in Navin, are you listening? Tom, Tom was uh, upset earlier on. I'd say right now he's fuming. <laughs> Thanks uh, for your text earlier on. I, I thought uh, you'd be interested in hearing that after the comments that you made earlier on. It's been an important week or so, they say, in terms of climate change and tackling global warming. Uh, a lot of talk, but what will be done is uh, the annual response to uh, the COP conferences as they take place but indeed there was some really passionate speeches made over the course of the last week and one of them came from the former US Vice President and longtime climate activist Al Gore. We heard some of his contribution earlier in the week on the programme and I think before we finish up the programme this week we'll hear a little bit more from Al Gore. The truth is that all of us have limitations and weaknesses and vulnerabilities, but as human beings, we also have the God-given ability to rise above those limitations. The greatest leader of my country, Abraham Lincoln, once said, the occasion is piled high with difficulty, and we must rise with the occasion. As our case is new, we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves and then we shall save our country, and that is the way we can save our world. More is needed, but we have the basis for hope. Just days ago, the people of Brazil chose to stop the destruction of the Amazon. Earlier this year, the people of Australia chose to start leading the renewable energy revolution. Earlier this year, the people of my country chose leaders who enacted at long last 
the biggest and most ambitious climate legislation in the history of the world. The world has passed and enacted the Kigali Amendment. We have the basis for hope. If we actually do reach true net zero, the scientists tell us temperatures will stop going up with a lag time of as little as three to five years. And if we stay at true net zero, half of all of the man-made CO2 will fall out of the atmosphere in as little as 25 to 30 years. But we have to choose blessings instead of curses. We have to choose life over death. Big choices, there is no doubt, and hard to believe that the carbon would fall out of uh, the sky, given the way we've been told that if we don't act like that, uh, we're going to see complete devastation. We're going to see thousands, millions of, of lives lost, millions of people are on the move, cities sink into the sea, flooding and drought and all sorts of things, some of which we're already experiencing uh, to uh, some extent. Uh, and of course, all of this uh, comes at a, a time when countries are saying that it, it's difficult to act the way we had intended to. Uh, and to fulfil the promises we made last year at COP26 because of the war. Uh, and another passionate spe- speech uh, to COP27 came uh, from uh, the Secretary General of uh, the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, and he addressed that issue of tackling climate change in the context of a war in Europe. The war in Ukraine, other conflicts have caused so much bloodshed and violence and their dramatic impacts all over the world. But we cannot, we cannot accept that our attention is not focused on climate change. We must, of course, work together to support peace efforts and then the tremendous suffering. But climate change is on a different timeline and a different scale. It is a defining issue of our age. It is the central challenge of our century. It is unacceptable, outrageous and self-defeating to put it on the back burner. Indeed, many of today's conflicts are linked with growing climate chaos. And the war in Ukraine has exposed the profound risks of our fossil fuel addiction. And today's crisis cannot be an excuse for backsliding or greenwashing. If anything, there are a reason for greater urgency, stronger action, and effective accountability. Excellencies, human activity is the cause of the climate problem, so human action must be the solution. Action to re-establish ambition, and action to rebuild trust, especially between North and South. The science is clear. Any hope of limiting temperature rise to 1.5 degrees means achieving global net zero emissions by 2050. But that 1.5 degree goal is on life support and the machines are rattling. We are getting dangerously close to the point of no return. And to avoid that dire fate, all G20 countries must accelerate their transition now in these decades. But will they? That's the big question. That's Antonia Guterres. Chris Murray was sent to control tower. Maggie McGuire researched. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. 
the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.